0: Hi, this is Anushka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'm happy to get a chance to speak with you uh, tonight and that you can hear me through the system also. And also I want to congratulate you on surviving your first day here at the retreat. So for those of you who have uh, not been on retreats before, particularly, congratulations. Uh, and even to those of you who have, it's always uh, challenging to come somewhere where uh, you don't know and have left behind the comforts of your home and your friends and all the things that are familiar to you. Eugene had mentioned about uh, having gone on his first retreat and that he didn't really know what he was getting into. Well, the truth is, you never really know what you're getting into. <laughs> so I remember one of my teachers telling me, you know, going on a retreat, it's like buying a ticket for a trip. Only thing is, you don't know where you're going on this trip. You don't know what the destination is. But actually, life is like that too. We just think we know where we're going a lot of the time. The truth is, everything's always a surprise. So I thought I'd talk with you a little bit tonight about what uh, my impression is of what we're doing here and why here at the retreat, share with you some of the teachings uh, that underlie some of the practices that we're doing here, and also delve some into some of the things that we've done to uh, set up retreat, the refuges, the precepts, and talk about the connection to what we're doing here in the practice today. So in the beginning of the retreat, Eugene had uh, read this quote, which I like a lot from the Satipatthana Sutta, The Foundations of Mindfulness. And it's about this practice that we're doing here. So this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So that sounds like a pretty good promise there, right? This is the direct path, the purification of being, surmounting of sorrow and lamentation. So who does not want that, right? Wouldn't you like to surmount sorrow and lamentation? Uh, would you like your pain and grief to disappear? So if this was a product that you saw advertised, you would want to uh, check out what that was, right? If you saw this on TV or, you know, if a pop-up ad came up on your browser, right? You'd be interested. What is this thing they're talking about, right? And actually, I think all of us as uh, human beings, and in fact, actually all animals too, are seeking this. We would all like to be free of pain, grief, right? We'd all all like to be past sorrow, lamentation, grief, right? So what's the way that we usually uh, do this? So we try and uh, do the best that we can to bumble around in the world looking for uh, ways to be free of our suffering. And in this effort, we look to many different things. So we look to many different things as a refuge. And in the beginning of this retreat, we took the uh, three refuges as Pam had uh, guided us in them. And refuge is like a place of safety. right? Like what is a place of safety for us? What is a place that we can go to? for security, for comfort? What can we really rely on? So if you think about it, what are the different things that you have used or do use in your life for this kind of a refuge? So in a mundane sense, there are ways in which we use things as a refuge. So I live in uh, San Francisco and uh, in the city, there are at some places little bus shelters, right? So there's glass things with a little top. So around this time of year, as we get to the winter, it starts to rain and you take refuge under these things if you're waiting for the bus. Right. So what are the things that we look for in our life in this way? And how well do they work? So you can reflect for yourself and you know, what do, I, what do I look for for comfort? What do I look for as for safety, for shelter? Right? So sometimes it's literally a shelter, right? A, a home. One of the great American ones is to, uh, you know, buy your own home, you know, secure your own house. That will be a place of refuge for you, security. For some people, it's a relationship, right? If I just find the right person, you know, then my life will be good. Someone, uh, who I can go through life with is a refuge. For some people, it's a job or a career, right? I want to find a good job. I want to find a career satisfying to me. For many people, it's money. Right. If I make a certain amount of money, right. that'll be my uh, safety, my refuge. Right. So now I'm not knocking any of this as uh, aspects of life that can be good. So to have a good partner, to have a good place to live, to have enough money. Right. Sometimes uh, we look for uh, being healthy. For some people, find it in being uh, young or good-looking, for a little while at least. For some people it's fame, uh, success in that way, right? But the, the tough thing is that none of these things can be permanently or ultimately relied upon. So many of you know this. In fact, many of the reasons people come to meditation and to meditation retreats is because one or more of those previous things have failed, right? So many people come after having had a really difficult breakup right? or having had a crisis in their health or having lost money, or having had a home burned down, or any number of things that can really shake your ideas of what you thought was what you could rely on in life. So what is it that this path is promising and how are we gonna get there? So the main thing that we're employing here in our practice uh, that we've been doing all day in different forms is practicing mindfulness. So mindfulness is both an extremely simple thing, but also it can be seem elusive to us. So mindfulness is uh, something that is a cornerstone of the Buddha's teachings for 2,600 years, started to infiltrate our culture here in 21st century America. So now we have mindfulness being taught Uh, through mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's taught in prisons, taught in schools, actually. Little kids are learning mindfulness. So the positive thing about that is you can think, well, if kindergartners are learning this, then maybe I have a chance at it too. One of my friends teaches in schools, and I've gone with her before to see, and they have little kids sitting there, and they practice mindfulness uh, for short periods of time. But still, they're very earnest about their practice. It's very sweet, actually. And they gain benefit from it, too. So mindfulness is basically knowing what is going on. So paying attention in an intentional way, it's a quality of mind. Mindfulness always occurs in the present moment. So mindfulness is knowing what's happening right now, right here and now. It's knowing what's happening in an unfiltered, pure way. So before our ideas about it get in the way. Mindfulness is as basic as knowing when you put your hand into this glass of water. Is the water wet or is it dry? Is the water cold or is it hot? So your direct experience through your physical body and through your mind of your experience of what we usually call life. So this is mindfulness, being present. Mindfulness is non-judgmental. So it's a quality of mind that is willing to meet whatever it is that is an experience. So it could be something that you like. It could be something that you don't like. It could be something pleasant. It could be something unpleasant. It could be something spectacular. It could be something extremely mundane. Mindfulness can meet all. Mindfulness also is free of an, a sense of me in it. So with mindfulness, there's just knowing of this experience prior to there being some idea of me and this experience and what I think about it and how I'd like it to be and how I'd like to manipulate it and how I'm going to write about it later and
1: all of that stuff. Right?
0: So mindfulness is just knowing exactly what it is. And what can we bring mindfulness to? So we start out here in the practice with some object like the breath, which is uh, considered kind of our anchor. So it's a pretty simple object, the breath. It's something that has been there throughout your life to greater or lesser extent, right? And in some ways it seems very mundane, Mm -hmm. right? But in other words, it's extremely profound. You know, if you think of your life as uh, so this tapestry, your breath has been the thing that's been stitching all the way through, from the moment you're born, first breath, in breath, out breath, in breath, out breath, in breath, out breath. Right? So throughout everything else that's changed in your life, you've continued to breathe. Right? So you've breathed through your early childhood from the moment you came out, you've breathed through elementary school, breathed through junior high, you've breathed through all the different places you've lived and apartments, you've breathed when you were sick, you've breathed through all your breakups, you've breathed through all the different pets you've had, every different meal, every bath, every good movie, bad movie, every car, graduation, everything. And here you are again, breathing, sitting here breathing continues on. So when we're paying attention to our breath, we're actually paying attention to our physical body, our physical experience, which is one of the main things that we're bringing mindfulness to here. As we go along in our retreat, we're going to expand the instructions to include other aspects of things that no doubt are already uh, apparent to you, already uh, coming to your experience including your thoughts, your emotions, right? All the different aspects of our mind-body experience. In the Buddhist teaching, we actually have six different sense stores. So there's the five sense stores which you probably learned in kindergarten, right? So seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, touching. Right? Those five. And the sixth sense store is actually your mind. So your mind is considered a sense store. And just as through the eye, you see sights, right? You have consciousness, you have an eye, you see sights. The nose, you receive smells. Through your ears and consciousness, you receive sounds. In the same way, in this teaching, the mind is considered a sense store that receives impressions in the form of thoughts, images, right? So the mind is just another sense store, but it's one that we tend to pay a lot of attention to and privilege and believe everything that we get through that, too. So as we continue our practice, we learn to bring mindfulness to everything in our experience. And that can be everything in all of these different sense doors. So you actually can learn to bring mindfulness to thought, knowing thought as thought. So just the same way that we bring mindfulness to our breath, and we just know, well, what is the breath? We feel the breath exactly as it is. So mindfulness doesn't mind if it's a short breath or if it's a long breath. If it's cold, if it's hot, if it's beautiful breath, if it's a choppy breath. Right? If it's a breath that you want to talk about later or not. Right? So mindfulness just meets every breath exactly as it is in each moment. And not only does it meet each breath, it meets the beginning of the breath, it meets the middle of the breath, it meets the end of the breath. Letting go each time. So here's a little bit more from the same uh, teaching of the Buddha around um, mindfulness. So we start with the breath, and then we'll move on, and we get into talking about mindfulness of the body. So we've practiced this today through the walking meditation as well. So paying attention to the experience of the legs, of the body, as you're moving through space and walking, right? Something we take for granted a lot. So here's the Buddha's instructions around this in the four postures uh, which Pam had mentioned in the instructions, standing, sitting, lying down, walking. So when walking, a bhikkhu, practitioner, understands I'm walking. When standing, she understands I'm standing. When sitting, she understands I'm sitting. When lying down, she understands I'm lying down. Or understands accordingly, however her body is disposed. So you can be mindful of your body, whatever is happening with it. A bhikkhu practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending their limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing their robes and carrying their outer robe and bowl, so when getting dressed, right, and with the clothes you have on, Who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting. So, eating meditation there. Who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating. So, this was not put on the schedule specifically, but also part of our practice. Who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So, you know, the title of our retreat here, Discovering Presence in Each Moment. You can see that the Buddha was on the same page with this, too, right? So there's not a lot that's left out of that, right? You're eating, you're getting dressed, you're walking around, you're going to the bathroom. It is all part of your practice, right? So this may sound like kind of relentless when you hear it like this, like oh no, <laughs> meditating in every moment all this time. It's just But the practice is just a very gentle one. So this is also a helpful thing to keep in mind is you know, the being present is something you can do in every moment, right? And also that we forget sometimes too. But the effort to be present can be very gentle, very gentle, very kind, right? So as light is just right now, knowing like, well, what, what, what does it feel like where your hands are? Whatever they're doing. There's no right position right now. But just feeling your hands where they are. Like actually do this, right? You don't have to look at them. Just know what it feels like. Is it hot? Is it cold? Is there pressure? Tingling? You don't need to close your eyes. So in that moment, you're becoming mindful. You're mindful of your bodily sensations. And it just takes a slight effort to tune into that. You don't need to bear down really hard. In fact, bearing down really hard is actually counterproductive. Another of the translations of mindfulness or in Pali at Sati is remembering. And this is interesting too because it's not hard to do, but it's hard to remember to do right? It's hard to remember to do continuously. But that's actually what we're doing here in this practice is practicing. So as we've tried to suggest in the instructions, you don't need to worry how many times that you drift off or go away or forget what you're doing here. Just each time you remember and come back is a moment in which you're actually cultivating this quality of presence cultivating the sense of being present. So the sense of being present is something that cuts across all different spiritual traditions and all different cultures, I would say. So if you think about people who you know, who you've ever met or heard of or seen, who are people who you would consider like really sacred people, holy people in some way, For me, one thing that goes across all of them is that these people have this sense of presence, right? They're really present. No matter what language they speak or how old they are or what their official religious tradition is or culture, how they look, right, there's just a sense that they're really there, right? And it doesn't have to be someone famous when you think about this. It could even be like your grandmother or, you know, someone who you feel like is someone who embodies this kind of sacredness, this presence. So that's actually what we're cultivating here. So all of us have this uh, capability to develop that. All of us already have that too. So in this first taking of refuge that we do, I take refuge in the Buddha, right? it actually is about something like that, like taking refuge in this possibility of awakening. So taking refuge in the fact that all of us can cultivate that, and all of us have that in us, the full awakening potential, every single person here. And for some people, they relate to the historical Buddha, so you know, the person who lived 2,600 years ago, and relate to that person as a teacher. Right? So then that also could be another meaning of it. But the truth is that all of us have the potential for coming into alignment with the truth of the way things are. So that brings to the second refuge. So the second refuge is the Dhamma. And Dhamma is the teachings of the Buddha, but also can be translated as uh, the way things are, just like nature, the truth of the way things are. So I always found it encouraging that uh, these teachings are not kind of some esoteric system that this guy thought up and that then you have to, like, figure out or memorize or, you know, put together. It actually is the way things are, which means that if you pay attention, you too can see this and figure this out. Is like the same thing going on in your body-mind process now as it was 500 years ago, as it was 1,000 years ago, as it was 2,600 years ago in some way. So basically what we're doing here in developing this sense of presence is aligning ourselves more and more with the way things actually are.
1: Right?
0: So you're aligning yourselves more and more with the Dharma, with the truth, with nature. Right? And the more that we are actually aligned with that, the more harmonious our life is. The more we can trust, the more we live without stress, without suffering and the less suffering that we cause for other people as well. So think about aspects of going against the way things are, going against uh, nature, as it were. Even something as simple as uh, the law of gravity. So the law of gravity is something that uh, seems to be here, seems to be uh, something that all of us are subject to, But who made up the law of gravity? Who is running the law of gravity? Can you escape the law of gravity? If you were smarter, richer, or more famous, would you not be subject to the law of gravity? No, all of us are subject to that, right? So you see babies sometimes experimenting, trying to figure out the law of gravity, right? So they're sitting in their high chair, and they'll drop things down. And uh, they'll drop like some peas off, drop their fork off their high chair, like watch it fall with interest. And then usually they'll watch the grown-up come and pick it up and retrieve it for them, which also become part of the game. Right? But as they do this, they're learning about it. Like you drop things and they always seem to fall. right? And uh, as you do this, you start to realize, like, that just seems to be the way things are. It actually doesn't matter who's running it, or it doesn't matter... Uh, any of the other theory behind it, but that's true. So then you learn to live more in alignment with that. So I learn like, oh okay, if I wanna place this little bottle, if I place it in midair, it's gonna fall, right? So more successful will be if I place it on this shelf, right? If I take this glass of water, if I try to place it in midair, right? It's gonna break, right? And the water's gonna go everywhere, right? But if I try to live in alignment with the law of gravity, then I place it over here, be less of a mess, uh, less broken glass and water around. Right? So it's similar to this aligning your life with the Dharma, aligning your life with the way things really are. Right? The more that we do this, the less messes we have. <laughs> right? And the more we understand who we truly are and what our connection to others is. So, what are some aspects of this uh, that we can uh, learn to uh, pay attention to? In a broader sense, we took some of these when we took the precepts here in the beginning of the retreat, you know, with the ethical guidelines for living. So, in a larger sense, these ethical guidelines are actually both the articulation of how someone who is completely aligned with the Dharma would live, right? And also, good ways for us to live as we're on the path there. So it's said that someone who is actually enlightened naturally follows their precepts, right? So they don't need to sort of think about it, reflect about it. It's just naturally, because they come from this place of being completely grounded in the interconnection that is between all of us. So being based in that interconnection between all of us, it would be impossible for a being to kill another life, right? It would just feel like, not possible, not right. right? It's off. Right? Any more than you will knowingly place a glass of water in midair anymore, right? So the precepts are both articulation of the way that one would be living, but also the way that one can live, right now, right here and now. Right? And they point out also these different aspects of ways in which we mistakenly live. And ways in which we go against the flow that cause suffering for ourselves and others. So, the roots of some of these uh, transgressions, you could say, for example, in killing, are the arising of a sense of uh, aggression, violence, hatred, right? Or in the sense of wanting to take something that's not offered, to steal something, is the arising of a sense of greed, of acquisitiveness. The sense of wanting. So those things arising, going unchecked, and us acting them out in some way. So as we practice with mindfulness, we learn to see in our body-mind system when these things arise. And as we see when these things arise, then we have some choice about when we want to act from them, what things we want to act from and what things we don't want to act from. Any of the transgressions of the precepts also happen When there's a sense of separation. So there's a sense of me over here, and there's a sense of you over there, and I want to hurt you. Or there's a sense of me over here, and your thing over there, and I want that, right? Something like that. This sense of separation like that. So on a relative level, this is true. There is separation between us and there is separation of things and beings. But there's another level on which there is a complete connection between all of us. In some ways, you could break the precepts up into the three main ones. of, So not killing, which could be from not harming. And then connected in the not killing is also the not harming through speech, and not harming through use of sexuality. Right? Then you'll have the part that's about not taking, the greed part. Right? And then the part about the uh, intoxicants that cloud the mind is really about delusion. So not doing things that lead to clouding the mind, not seeing clearly. Right? So in the precepts, we actually have this articulation of what's often called the three main poisons of greed, hatred, delusion, and how those play out when we're not paying attention. So no doubt as you've been sitting here, you've noticed some of these, to some lesser or greater extent, manifest in your meditation. And a couple of these are listed in the top five hindrances to meditation, which is a familiar list for some of you. So two of them are about greed and hatred, So wanting something else to be happening than is actually happening, or hating what is actually happening right now. So none of these things actually have to be hindrances to your meditation, because mindfulness can meet anything, as I mentioned before. Mindfulness can know all. So you can actually bring mindfulness to the experience of not wanting something to happen or you can bring mindfulness to the experience of wanting something else. So for example, during the day today, it could be that at some point in your sittings you experience some amount of physical discomfort. Anyone here experience any physical discomfort today? Yes, yes. And when you experience physical discomfort, how is that for you? What was your relationship to that? So here's one of the keys in this whole thing is that it's not actually about what shows up, but about what is our relationship to that, right? So can we actually bring a sense of presence to that? Can we know that? Can we know even when we're hating it, right? So in terms of the mindfulness meditation, we actually kind of don't care whether we're having like beautiful, beatific, light-filled meditations or uh, painful, tortured, contracted meditations, right? In some way, (laughs) They say, like, oh, I care. But in some ways, either way, we can bring mindfulness to them. And in each case, we can see what we need to see in order to be free. So in the case of pain that occurs in your body, for example, you can meet that with mindfulness. And it could be a painful experience. It could be something that you know as unpleasant sensation in your body. Right? Or it could be something that is like my knee pain, which hurts, but which also I start having a giant story around, which includes how it came to be and what will happen if I don't move and uh, how this is similar to the last time that this happened, and so on and so forth. Right? So it's helpful to bring mindfulness to all those different aspects of your experience in this case. Right? So usually we just have something unpleasant happen in our body and we start to hate it. So it's not bad enough there's something unpleasant happen. Our strategy is to hate it, right? To contract around it, to push it away, uh, and put a lot of energy into that cycle. Mindfulness can actually just meet the experience as it is, and actually just know, like, okay, this is difficult. This is a difficult experience, this is unpleasant. And can actually investigate that sense of pain in the knee. Like, well, what is this really? This is my idea is knee pain. My idea is my right knee. My idea is, oh, this is gonna go on for a long time if I don't move. You can actually bring mindfulness to that experience and know, well, what is it actually? There's some heat, there's pulsing. It's actually not as solid as you think it is. Right? There's movement, it changes over time. Sometimes what's interesting is the knee pain actually disappears, but you're still thinking about it. Right. So it's like, oh, that that unpleasant experience is actually gone, but you're still suffering because you're thinking about it in that same way. Right. So it's interesting to notice that, and this is a key place of freedom too. So what's the truth about what's going on in my life, and what are my stories about it, right? Now you can extrapolate this, of course, some of you I can see already are, to the ways in which this plays out in your life, right? So what's actually happening to me in my life? And is that bearable, right? And then what's my ideas and stories about it, right? So what actually happened to me today at work, right? And what's the six-hour postscript that I'm having that's actually continuing to make me miserable all through the next uh, period of time. So mindfulness helps us to sort that out, right? To see what's really happening. And what's really happening is almost always like much more bearable than our whole idea and configuration around it is. So I said there was a pair, there was this Aversion, hatred kind of thing. And then there's the other side, which is when something good is happening, grasping after it. Right. So this sense of desire. Desire for something else to happen. So this desire sounds like not such a bad one. The knee pain thing, okay, that sounds difficult, right? But the desire sounds like, oh, why is that a problem? So when you're in the state of wanting something to happen, you're kind of in this leaning state. Right. You're leaning forward in some way. Right? You're not centered. And a lot of times when we're wanting something else to happen, right, in our life, broadly speaking, we're missing what's actually happening right now. So you might have perhaps had this experience uh, even uh, today in the, in the meal, one of the meals, if there's some food that you like and you get some of it, perhaps uh, cheese, if you like that, perhaps a banana, if you like those, so you get that, and you're eating it, and you notice how much you like it. But then actually while you're eating it, you start to think about whether or not there'll be another one, right? Whether there's going to be enough left for seconds, right? Whether you can go back, right? Would that look bad now? Should I wait? Is this appropriate amount of time, you know, right? So meanwhile, you're missing the banana. It's like missing the banana in your mouth, thinking about the possible second banana in your future, right? That sense of desire, right? Leaning for that. And this happens so much in our life, right? We miss what's actually happening because we're leaning out of the moment. So this path is one of some amount of renunciation, but it also is one in which you can enjoy pleasant things that actually appear in your life. Right? So there's definitely nothing wrong with enjoying good things. It's not about like trying to flagellate yourself or only make difficult things happen for yourself. But notice when it is that you're able to actually be here with something that's pleasant and when you're actually in the state of leaning away, right? In your meditation, this happens too. In seated meditation, right? How much time do you spend like leaning away, wanting something else to be happening, right? I want a different experience in my mind body system. I want what that guy's having. He looks like he's, he's having it pretty good, right? I want, I want that guy's meditation. So desire, this wanting, this grasping, reaching, and this pushing away. So if not seen clearly, these can be challenges in our meditation. The other one comes in a pair also, which is sleepiness and restlessness. right? So physical manifestations. I know there's a lot of sleepiness today, and this is normal. right? So if you experience sleepiness, you're a normal human being. It often happens in the beginning of retreats, first of all because you're actually tired, because you had to rush around to actually get here. right? And then also sometimes it's because you're not used to sitting quietly. right? So we're kind of paying attention in a much more subtle level than we usually do to what's going on. So if you have a busy life, you might uh, relate to this, as kind of like you run around all day, run around all day, and then finally you kind of collapse into bed. And then when the alarm rings, you get up again and, you know, repeat. So suddenly you come on this meditation retreat. It's really quiet. Nobody's really talking to you. You're just sitting here quietly breathing. So to your system, this sometimes says, like, conk out, nap time. Right? There's nothing going on. This is a good time to get rest. So be patient with yourself with this. And like with everything, that we're describing in the meditation, you can bring mindfulness to this, so get interested in this. So you can get interested in this sense of sleepiness that comes. So where does sleepiness start in your body? Where does it start in your mind? When do the first tendrils of sleepiness start to creep over your system? Where's the edges of that in your body, in your mind? How long does it last? Are there any holes in your sleepiness or is it solid? Does it move? Does it shift? Does it change? When does it end also? So you can get interested in this even in the uh, going to bed. So one of the things that was listed in this was about when waking up and when going to sleep. So you have to do this very gently, but you can actually pay attention to what it feels like as you're falling asleep. If you put too much energy, of course, then you won't fall asleep. you are just you're like, yeah. Waiting to fall asleep. I'm waiting, I'm watching, right? Uh, but you can just pay attention to see like, what does it feel like in my body, right? Your body usually kind of relaxes in a different way, right? What does it feel like as I'm drifting off to sleep, right? Don't try too hard with this, but if you're interested, you can just check it out, right? And then you can notice, what does it feel like when you're waking up, right? When you're in your bed, when you first wake up, how do you know you're awake? How do you know the difference between dreaming and sleeping? Like, what does that feel like? How do you know when you first wake up, I'm awake, as opposed to being asleep? So you can get interested in these things like that, very gently again, like you don't need to do it uh, with too much uh, intensity or uh, just gently bringing the sense of investigation to all different aspects of your life here. And this is a great place to do it. Right? Restlessness is the other side, which some of you might have had too. So restlessness manifests physically as feeling sometimes like you're going to jump out of your skin. Right? Like a lot of energy going on. Right? A lot of energy in the mind also. Restlessness, thoughts going really, really fast, zinging around. right? It's kind of like a storm or something like that. So in practicing with restlessness, it's actually helpful to create a big container. So a lot of spaciousness for the restlessness. So instead of kind of bearing down and like trying to contain it, you actually kind of can do the opposite. So the metaphor that's used sometimes is that it's like if you have a, uh, like say a horse that's like really restless and kicking around a lot. If you put it into a very small pen, it tends to get more agitated, right? Like kick the door down and make a big ruckus, right? But if you put it in a big field and just let it kick around, then kind of kicks around, kicks around, and then after a while it starts to mellow out a little bit. Or if it doesn't, it's okay because it's in a big field. right? So likewise, in your uh, sense of awareness, you actually kind of create a big container when you're feeling very restless. So you're sitting there and you feel like, oh, I'm going to jump out of my skin. Sometimes it helps to open your eyes. Sometimes you can imagine that the awareness that's holding this sense of restlessness, that's holding this sense in your body right now, is as large as the whole room. And this is a good room for it because it's got this very high ceiling, right? The corners, you know, very spacious, right? So open up your sense of the container that's holding it and then let it be there, right? So, all right, restlessness, let me know you, right? Go ahead, kill me, let me feel you, right? Knock around. This is the big field. So a sense of, of doing this, you already know how to do this visually. So for example, so I'm holding up this bell striker, right? So you can look at the bell striker, right? So visually, look at the bell striker and you see it, right? And you're looking very pointedly. So this is similar to focusing in a more specific way. And then I want you to relax your gaze so that you see actually this whole tableau here, right? So you see... The whole space here, the teachers and the stage and the flowers and the Buddha and everything. So you're not looking directly at this striker anymore, but it still is within your field of vision, right? So you can still see it, it's there, or you're not as focused on it. So opened up that gaze, right? Opened up that space. So that's similar to how you can do that with this sense of creating space in your practice when there's something that's intense like this restlessness, right? So from trying to bear down, I just try and open up, create a sense of spaciousness like that. So you can play with that a little bit too in your practice. The fifth one that we have as challenges in meditation is doubt, and some people uh, reported this when we had our group interviews. This is actually a common one, in some ways the most pernicious and challenging, sneaky, it's a sneaky one. Sometimes people don't really um, talk about it that much because if you're not paying attention, basically you're caught in it a lot. So this isn't the kind of tradition in which we say, good, now that you've entered, you can have no more questions. From now on, you have to believe everything and do everything, and that's how it is, right? So asking questions is good, and investigating things is good. This kind of doubt is like kind of a uh, pesky, skeptical doubt that arises. So for example... All of you apparently have decided to come on a meditation retreat, right? But sometimes this voice comes up and say, like, I shouldn't have come on this meditation retreat. should have gone camping instead. Or maybe I should have waited until the New Year's retreat. That might have been a better time. It's much more profound at New Year's, right? Oh, I should have come at a different time when there's different teachers. Or maybe I should have gone on that yoga retreat, you know? So on and so forth. So you can spend a lot of time entertaining this kind of conversation in your head, right? Lots of time. These were good conversations to entertain before you decided to come here. But now that you've decided to come here, let me suggest that this is now the voice of this doubt coming up. And I'd mentioned this in some of my groups that, you know, this kind of practice is really an experiential one. You know, this mindfulness, this whole practice. So it's not one that you need to sit around and like, well, I'll just think about it and I'll get it, right? So it's kind of like if you were um, hungry and there's like a bowl of soup there and you're wondering, I wonder if eating this bowl of soup is going to make me not hungry anymore. I wonder if this will satisfy my hunger. So sitting around thinking about it is not going to actually give you the answer to that. Like, well, it looks thick and it looks like there's good vegetables in it, so that probably will, but I don't usually like soup, so, you know, you actually have to eat the bowl of soup to know is that going to work or not, right? So this is similar. So coming on a meditation retreat and thinking about whether you should be on the meditation retreat is like sitting in front of a bowl of soup and thinking about or talking about it or writing about it when you're actually hungry, right? So what you want to do is actually eat the bowl of soup and then you can decide, no, soup's not for me, or yeah, that was good, that soup worked, right? I'm no longer hungry. So when this voice of doubt comes up, and plagues you like this, the first thing to do is to just recognize it. Like, oh, this is doubt. Right? This is the voice of doubt. And to know it. So be able to see it clearly, as clearly as you can. Sometimes the way to recognize it was, is when you've been, like, sitting around thinking for a long, long time, right? Sometimes you can, it can actually help to reflect on the reasons for coming, to sort of, you know, counter this. Be like, no, this is why I wanted to come. I wanted to come for this reason, this reason, this reason. And let me try it, and then I'll decide whether it was good or not. Sometimes it helps to sort of imagine this voice of doubt in some sort of like, even sort of personified way. You know, it's kind of like this gremlin that visits you and is uh, plaguing you. So you're sitting there, minding your own business, trying to meditate. Pops up, like, should have gone on that yoga retreat. Yoga's much better. You're not moving enough here. probably get really stiff, right? Voice of doubt here, right? So you imagine that, uh, oh, there you are, voice of doubt. Right. You can actually dispatch it. Go for a hike, go outside. I'm meditating, you know,
1: right?
0: You can send it away like that,
1: right?
0: You can also ex- experience, well, what is that like, doubt, as it manifests in my body? With all these things, you can investigate it like this. Like, what does it feel like? What does doubt feel like? So sometimes it feels like this, you know, um, a bunch of bees buzzing around my head. You know, it doesn't really allow me to settle.
1: Right.
0: What does it feel like in your body and your mind? You know, Get interested. Get interested in that and know that. Right. Doubt also sometimes manifests as self-doubt, which some of you might have also uh, been visited by today. Right. So sometimes it seems like well, everyone's all very quiet and still. I'm the only one who can't do this. how nicely Pam and Eugene sit, so still, so peaceful looking. I'll never get to do that. Or the person next to me, you know, they haven't moved all day. So this is the voice of self-doubt, right? It's kind of a a flavor of this general doubt, but it's pointing towards you, right, and saying, oh, you can't do this, not for you. Yeah, they say 2,600 years and, you know, all these people have done this, but that's not... I can't do it. I'm the exception. I'm, I'm special, but not in a good way. Right? So, actually, all of these hindrances uh, visited the historical Buddha, uh, the teacher of this uh, practice, during his practice. So, I'll end just telling you a little bit about his story, right, which you can relate to perhaps. So Buddha was a person who lived 2,600 years ago in northern India. He came from a life of privilege. He had everything going for him. When he was born, his uh, parents took him to an astrologer who said, well, you know, your son is either going to be a great ruler, he's going to follow in dad's footsteps, run the kingdom, or he's going to be a great spiritual teacher. So guess which one dad preferred? So he wanted to keep him in the family uh, line. So he decided he was going to make his life in the castle, in the in this palace, in his life as it was, as good as possible, so there would be no incentive for him to do anything else but follow in his footsteps, right? Keep things going. So when he grew up, he had everything he wanted. And he apparently was a very talented and uh, beautiful young man, and he got to spend his time engaged in archery and music and and friends and uh, lots of people to entertain him. And everything was all good for this guy. Then after a while, he got kind of curious about, you know, what's it like outside the palace? What's going on out there? So he wanted to go take a look. His father tried to dissuade him as much as possible. But he wasn't going to be put off from this. So he decided to go out and his father said, okay, you can go out, give you a chariot, chariot you can go out, but we'll tell you what time to go out. So in the meantime, at the time he was supposed to go out, they decided to make everything all perfect outside. Right? So they do this for dignitaries sometimes, right? So sweep the streets, clean everything up. Uh, it's like a Hollywood movie set. Get rid of anyone who looked like they were old or sick or uh, not beautiful or troubled or anything, you know. Give them all flags to wave, right? Hello, Prince, kind of thing, you know, right? So everything's all good. Streets are clean. So he's riding around, checking out the outside, waving stuff. And then at the corner, of the eyes he sees someone who seems to have escaped the, uh, you know, sort of Homeland Security sweep up, who's uh, uh, looking a little bit worse for wear, right? So he asks uh, the charioteer, Channa, like, so, hey, what's up with that person? What's going on? He says, oh, well, that's someone who's sick. So what do you mean, sick? What is that? He said, oh, it just means their body's not healthy. They're uh, not well. It happens to everyone. Everyone, really? It happens to everyone? Yeah, yeah, it happens to everyone. Uh, pretty much, sometime or another. So this troubled him and puzzled him, because he had not seen this before. Right? He said, turn around, go back. I've had enough. Right? So he went back, brooding on this, thinking about this. He says, I want to go out again. So again, they... Say, all right. And they roll out the whole Hollywood situation, clean up the streets, get all the beautiful people out there. He goes out, then this time out of the corner of his eye, in between the waving and everything being all nice, he sees someone who's very, very old, right? All stooped over and they lost their teeth and hair and stuff. He says, hey, Tana, what's with that person? What's that? He says, oh, that's an old person. Said, what do you mean old person? He said, says, oh, that's what happens to all of us as we go on in years as we get older, and the body changes, and, yeah. He says, really? Wow. All he's seen so far is, like, beautiful young people, right, hanging around, playing music and all that. So he's puzzled, and he's troubled. He goes back. Turn around, I've had enough, right, goes back. Brooding on this. He wants to go out again, third time. Again, they set up the scene. You can guess. What happens? He sees something else out of the corner of his eye. And this time it's actually a corpse. Yeah. So They had told everyone not to have funerals, not to bury people, but people don't seem to uh, comply and they die at whatever times they want, right? So someone had died, so then they're wrapped up and they're being carried out. And he says, hey, what's, what's with that person lying down? He says, well, that's actually a dead person, it's a corpse. A corpse was set. He says, oh, that's where all of us are going. We're all gonna die. It means it's the end of their life. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean, end of life? Yeah, everyone's life is going to end like that. Mine too. Yours too. Right. So this is very troubling. So then gets sent back. What's it all about? You know, What's it all about if this is true? If people get sick, if people get old, if people are going to die, if I'm going to die? What's, what's it all about? So he goes out a fourth time. And this fourth time when he goes out, he actually sees someone who is a spiritual seeker. So in that time, spiritual seekers were known, they're wearing robes, carrying a bowl, right? And there were actually spiritual seekers of many different traditions going around. Uh, So he asked who that person was, and the charioteer told him, oh, that's someone who's a spiritual seeker, sannyasin, someone who's seeking the truth, who's trying to understand. And then he knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to be one of those. He wanted to find out. He wanted to understand. So then the story continues. He goes back home. Of course, his father didn't like this plan. He ends up sneaking away to follow this uh, kind of life, leaving his palace behind. So going off into the forest and spending many years in practice under different teachers, trying to find the way to understand suffering, the end of suffering, life, death, what it's all about. And after many years of practice, he... he masters many different systems. Uh, he finally finds his way, basically, through perfecting his experience and through his practice of mindfulness. And when he finally sits down to actually have his, what is his final ultimate pre-enlightenment sitting, he is actually assailed by all of these hindrances, by all of these factors. So he's sitting, this posture like this, He's sitting through the night, and uh, the personification in the uh, Buddhist teaching is named Mara. So it's Mara, the uh, tempter, or the one who's trying to get him off track. So Mara first sends him, you know, these uh, it's like beautiful dancing girls and music, and look at all the stuff you're missing, and do you really want to be doing this? Ah, oh, go back to the palace, That was much better there, come on, right? He's solid, keeps his seat, right. dismisses that, sees that. I see you, Mara. Right. That's what he often says. I see you, Mara. Sees him. Right. Next one sends all these things to scare him off. Right? These armies of Mara to scare him. Frightening. Worst things you'd see in any horror movie. Right? Skulls and arrows and grotesque things. Keeps his seat. He knows what he wants. It's like I'm not being moved. I'm not going to be moved. Right? Sits through that. He sits through the night, all the different energies of the body-mind. final one Mara sends is actually self-doubt. Who are you to be sitting here seeking this enlightenment? Who are you to be seeking the answers to these things? Who do you think you are? So this is the voice that comes to you too. It's trying to throw you off your seat. And he will not be moved. So on this night, he will not be moved. He puts his hand down to the ground. The earth bears witness. The earth bears witness to my right to be here. Right? And this is the posture that you see in this uh, statue with the hand going down, touching the earth. Right? And in that moment, he's dismissed all of the forces of Mara. He sees through into the true nature of things, enlightened. And then he goes on to his uh, long teaching career. So even to the last day, uh, he was assailed by these forces. And you too, as you sit here, in your practice, will find yourself moved by these, right? Mara will come in its different forms, right? The things that you could be doing otherwise, or things that you don't want to have happening, right? So our practice here, as best we can with mindfulness, is just to meet everything. So like the Buddha, you know, can I sit steady through this? Can I meet this? Can I know this experience for what it is, right? Including that experience of you cannot do this. You're not the one to do this. You should just give it up, right? So you too can also touch the earth and remember that. You also have this capability, this possibility of complete awakening. You have the capability to align yourself, right? You have this possibility of knowing the nature of how things are and becoming one with that. Everyone here does. And it's just through your own persistent effort. So just being here, doing the best you can to be present, doing the best you can to see, forgiving yourself for all the times that you blow it, right? and just starting over, over and over again, that you too will be able to see into things the way they are. So I thank you for your attention. I honor you for coming here on this retreat, spending your time in this way. It's not easy to do. And we can sit together for a moment, just like the Buddha did. Let whatever comes in the next few minutes come. And you too cannot be moved. So now in your posture, I have to say, sometimes you hear this story and... Then you start to idealize this particular posture. It's like, oh, if I could only get my legs up like that, then that would be great, right? So the posture is not as important. You keep your back upright, but the solidity, the stability of the body and the mind is what's important. So it's good if you're sitting in a chair, if you're kneeling, any of that is fine, really, right? So connecting again with your own body. Connecting with your breath, that breath that sustained you throughout your life and continues with you today. Appreciating yourself and your courage for being here and all the fortunate circumstances that have allowed us to be here today. And let the words go that you've heard. And just return to presence. Now, when you hear the sound of the bell, I invite you to shift your attention to the sound the experience of hearing, let yourself connect with that sense of hearing the bell arise for as long as you hear it arise. Let all the bell ring out before you open your eyes. If your mind wanders off the sound, just notice that and gently bring it back again.